You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. Father, I pray that we would humble ourselves before you right now. There's a ton of distractions. We know that the enemy is present with us right now, desiring to distract us from what we're about to hear, convincing us that it's not important, convincing us, yeah, you've heard this a thousand times before. And I pray that he would be shut down. I pray that we would all have ears to hear. I pray that what we hear today would move us move us to awe and worship of you and service to you and your church and to this island. I pray that you would do this. I pray that we would not leave this place the same people that we are, but that we would be transformed by your Holy Spirit. Lead us, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Last week we began a series, uh, a four-week series on what we believe and what we are to be devoted to. Uh, the first two weeks, last week and this week, are uh, we're talking about a ancient creed known as the Apostles' Creed, uh, and it's a concise statement uh, of faith regarding what we as Christians believe to be true of the Bible. We covered a very small portion of it last time, and we're going to finish it today. Um, I, I spent a little time last week pointing out the importance of creeds because some people are like, no, we don't need any creed but the Bible. But we talked about the fact that creeds are important because they guide us into truth. Good creeds, there are bad creeds, there's no doubt about that. But uh, they help us uh, to, to know what the truth is, almost as a guideline for navigating the scriptures very often. We talked about that last week, and then I came across a, across a Cross, a quote from R.C. Sproul uh, regarding doctrinal confessions like we're talking about today. And here's what he said. He said this, quote, although tradition does not rule our interpretation, it does guide it. If upon reading a particular passage, you have come up with an interpretation that has escaped the notice of every other Christian for 2,000 years, or has been uh, championed by universally recognized heretics, chances are pretty good that you had better abandon that interpretation." Uh, end quote. And to that I say, amen. You know, if you found something new and novel in the Bible that no one has ever uh, seen before, you might want to question that. Uh, confessional statements guide us as we try to navigate uh, the scriptures. We have the Holy Spirit and we have teachers that the Holy Spirit has appointed in his church. So I want to begin again by reading the Apostles' Creed. And just to let you know that this is a creed that has been um, quoted and recited in many churches, thousands of churches throughout uh, the centuries. And mostly what would happen in is, is that when someone was being baptized, when they're identifying with Christ, the person baptizing them would ask, Christian, what do you believe? 
and they would respond, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Last week, we started off by emphasizing the importance of personal faith in these things. First, personal faith in who God is and what God requires of us. We must all believe what the Bible teaches us about God and ourselves. And we said that believing is not just uh, a mental assent to the facts. It's not just saying, oh yeah, I believe that there is a God. Yes, I believe that Jesus was an actual historical being. We said it's not just enough because even the demons believe that and even more than you do. It is a trust in those facts. And I, have, I know I've told this story uh, several times before, uh, but it bears repeating. And I know that there's enough new people in here that you may not have heard this uh, illustration, but uh, repetition is the best teacher. But about 25 to 30 years ago, I was asked by a friend to go rappelling uh, down the side of a wall. Uh, and I'd never been rappelling. And I remember going there and we were getting all harnessed up. And then he handed me this rope. It was about a half inch thick rope. And he said, what you're going to do is you're going to put this through the loop and then you're going to go up on this platform and you're going to go to the edge of the platform with your back to it, with just space between you and 50 feet below, and you're just going to fall backwards. You're just going to lean backwards and the rope will hold you. The rope will hold you. And so what he was asking me is to believe in that rope. Now I could have been on the ground and he could have asked me, do you believe <laughs> that this half-inch rope is going to support all 140 pounds of you. Now, that was several years ago. I'm a little bit more than that now. But anyway, I want to keep it accurate, right? And so, do you believe that this rope is going to support your whole weight? And I could have said, yes, I do. But I don't demonstrate my faith in that rope until I actually go to the edge, turn around, 50 feet between me and death, right? And I trust that this rope will keep me safe. This is what saving faith is. Saving faith is, yes, I believe in God, but now I'm resting my whole weight on him. I'm not trusting in anything else. I'm not trusting in my good works. I'm not trusting in this religion. I'm not trusting in my past. I'm not trusting in anything. I'm trusting in Jesus and what he said was true of me and what he said is true of him that if I put my faith in him, that he will forgive me and grant me access to the Father and to heaven one day. That is what faith is. It is resting our whole weight on God. What we also saw last week, just as a way of brief review, is that we saw that this confessional statement, the Apostles' Creed, is what is known as Trinitarian. That means it talks about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
one God existing in three distinct persons with different roles. One God. We also said that if you look at the statement, you'll see that very little um, of the statement is devoted to describing God. Even sm smaller uh, amount is devoted to describing the Holy Spirit, but a large portion of it describes the Son. So we said that this statement is Christological. It points to, it emphasizes the Son. And so what we saw once again is that we must believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. There is one God who made everything that you see in this room and in creation, and even those things that you don't see, those invisible things. And one day you and I, every person in here, will give an account to that God. Every person, whether you believe in him or not, whether you confess uh, him or not, you will give an account to him one day. No one will escape that. But we also saw that we as Christians get the amazing, wonderful privilege to call the God of the universe who spoke the world into existence, who sustains it, we get to call him Father. We get to call him Dad, right? And I remember growing up, I remember uh, you get into fights with the kids at the, at the park, right? And it's just like, my dad can beat up your dad, right? I mean, that was how you'd go back. No one can beat up God, right? I mean, that's who we get to call dad. He is our father. As a father, he cares for us. He provides for us. He protects us. And he has promised us a glorious future inheritance, which will never, ever fade away. So that's what we learned about God. And then last week, we started to talk about the sun. All right. And before we go on to the sun in more detail, here's what I want to say. I want to caution you. I want to caution you right now to not see this as a mere recitation of the facts. This is what we believe about God. Boom, boom, boom. As if you're going to get a test at the end of this. I don't want you to see this as a, as a, a, as a citation of the facts. What I want you to do, the reason that these facts are written down in the Bible and preserved for us, the reason that God had them written down about himself and humanity, so is that in us understanding them, we would be moved to awe and worship of him. The, th the reason that these are written down for us is so that we would worship God and stand in awe of him and say, whatever you ask of me, that is what I will do because I get to serve you and there's nothing greater than that. And I would say if we are not moved to awe and worship of God, then you have missed the point of this sermon and the entire Bible. You've missed the, 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 the purpose of the entire Bible because the Bible was written so that you would know God and that you would love God, that you would stand in awe of God. And so the Apostles' Creed says, continuing on, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. We talked a little bit about the name of Jesus. It means Yahweh saves or the Lord saves. And it was given to him because he came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to save his people from their sins. The creed, after it gives the name of Jesus, it gives three titles for Jesus. It gives him the title Christ, Son, and Lord. The word Christ uh, is interchangeable with the word Messiah and means the anointed one. Jesus was and is the Messiah. 
the one spoken of ever since man fell in the garden. We're going to turn uh, to a lot of scriptures. Like I said last week, you can follow along or you can just listen. Uh, The first is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Genesis is the first book in the Bible. uh, And we're looking at the third chapter. After man had fallen, God came into the garden and started to hand out curses for disobedience. And God turns his attention first to the serpent who was Satan. And here's what he declared to Satan. He said this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the very first mention of the promised Messiah in the Old Testament. The one who would come into the world and would undo everything evil that Satan had just set into motion. As soon as our first parents sinned against God, everything bad that is in the world today started to grow. And Jesus came to undo all of that, to overcome it all. This promised Messiah, then this idea of the Messiah is expanded upon in the Old Testament. You have this very obscure um, uh, mention of him in Genesis 3.15, and then you get more information about him, where he'll be born, what he will do as the Old Testament progresses. And then finally, what we see in the Old Testament is that the prophets say that this, they indicate that this, he's going to be an unusual person. He will be both divine and human, that he will teach and preach, and that he will heal as well. And then, of course, when we get to the New Testament, the long-awaited Messiah has come on the scene. He comes in the form of this little baby, born in the most humble of circumstances. He grows into a man, and then when he comes on the scene, he declares himself to be the long-awaited Messiah. There's dozens of passages that point to this. I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 in the New Testament. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, Um, in the New Testament. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. Jesus has not done anything in terms of ministry. Jesus was born. He lived the first 30 years of his life in obscurity. Uh, And then he is baptized, goes into the wilderness, and is tempted by Satan, just like Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden, except Jesus does not give in at all. Jesus comes through with flying colors, no sin whatsoever. And then he starts his earthly ministry. He goes into a synagogue, a place of worship and instruction as a guest preacher. And they say, hey, it's nice to have you, Rabbi Jesus. Would you like to read from the scroll today? So they hand him the scroll of Isaiah. And here's what it says. Verse 16, Luke 4. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today 
this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What Jesus was doing is declaring, you know, Genesis 3.15, you know, when they fell, that little mention, you know, how all the prophets spoke about this coming Messiah. I'm here. It is me. Well, why is this significant? The reason it's significant because of everything that we just read in Luke chapter 4, right? Because Jesus came to preach good news. The bad news is that this world is full of sin and disease and sickness and all sorts of things and death. And Jesus came to preach that good news. The, the bad news is that we were separated from God. The good news is that Jesus has come to bring us back into relationship with God, to release us from our spiritual prisons, to release us from the oppression of the enemy, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We were enemies of God. We were under God's curse. And Jesus has come to say, God will look upon with you with favor now because of Jesus. And this, isn't this what we need? We need to be released from our sins. We need the Lord's face shining upon us. We need his favor or we are doomed. Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, came to free us from our sins. Well, how did he free us from our sins? And why is that necessary? How did he free us from our sins and why is that necessary? Well, the rest of the Apostles' Creed and description of the Son explains um, how he did that. The why is rather simple. The why is because sin separates us from a holy God. Sin separates us from a holy God. God is too holy to look upon sin, even the smallest of sins. Now, I'm going to say something really difficult to understand, but listen. Do you realize that if you lived 80 years and just committed one sin, just told one lie, that you would deserve an eternal separation from God for that sin? No, 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 that can't, that can't be right. That can't be right. God grades on a curve. No, no, he doesn't. You and I don't understand how serious sin is. And we don't understand how serious sin is because we live in it every day and we see it every day. You turn on the news and you see sin. You turn on your favorite TV program, you see sin. You listen to your favorite songs, usually they are filled with sin. You look at the people in your neighborhood and that you work with and you see sin. And you look at your own life and you see sin. You live in it every day. It's not that big of a deal to you. It's not that big of a deal to me either. We see it all the time. And then we have this nasty habit of comparing ourselves to others, right? Because you can always find someone who's worse than you, right? That person for sure is going to hell. I'm not anywhere near them. I'm okay. God will certainly see all the good that I've done. Nope. God will not compare you to anyone else in this world. God will compare you by yourself in the final judgment up against his perfect standards. And what you will find on that day is that you will fall way short of that perfect standard. And I will find that I fall way short of that perfect standard. And the apostle Paul and David and every other great person in the Bible will fall, find that they fall way short of God's perfect standard. Standard. Sin separates us, 
and therefore sin must be taken out of the way if you and I are to have any kind of relationship with God. And the beautiful message, the good news that Jesus preached is that God has taken away your sin by sending his son into the world. The next several lines in the Apostles' Creed tell us who Jesus is and what he did. They tell us about his person and his work. Last week, we learned that Jesus is both God and man, that he is both human and divine. He was born of a human woman under miraculous circumstances, conceived by the Holy Spirit. He started out as a little baby and grew into a man. And all along the way, all along the way, Jesus had the same emotions that you and I have. He experienced happiness. He experienced anger. He experienced sadness. He experienced all that. Jesus had the same needs that you and I have. Jesus had to eat and drink or he would have died. Jesus had to sleep. We see in the Bible several times he's sleeping, right? Fast asleep in a storm. He was exhausted because he is a human being. And Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are as well. He experienced the same temptations that you and I experience, except for he never gave in to a single temptation. At the end of his earthly ministry, he suffered under Pilate. He was condemned to die via crucifixion by Pilate. And he was, in fact, crucified. And he died. And when he died, they took his body down from the cross, laid him in a tomb. They buried him. And he was dead. He was dead, as the Apostles' Creed states. Now, the next statement in the Apostles' Creed is a controversial statement because it says this. He descended into hell. All right, what in the world are you talking about here? And I've actually heard some versions where they just omit this line uh, completely. There's many thoughts about what the original writers meant by this. I'm not going to get into them. I don't want to make this more academic than it needs to be. Come to me and I'll give you some information about it. Um, I think there's a, a simple explanation that I'm going to present to you. Here's what I know I'm convinced that they did not mean. They did not mean that Jesus suffered in hell for three days. That Jesus went down and he was punished by the Father for three days in hell. He suffered the, the fires of hell for three days. I don't believe that that's what happened. And the reason that I don't believe that is because the best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible itself. And Jesus, when he was hanging on the cross, there were two thieves, one on either side of him, and they were both mocking him at first. And then one turned and one repented. And he looked at Jesus and he said, Jesus, remember me when you go into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus didn't say today, right? You'll be in paradise. I'll be there in three days because I got to go down and suffer in hell for three days. No, today you and I will be in paradise. So I don't believe there are churches that teach that Jesus suffered in hell for three days, and I don't believe that the Bible teaches that. He suffered the punishment for our sins as his father turned his face away from him and rejected him and forsook him for our sake. All right? 
So he could not have suffered in hell for three days. Well, what does it mean? Well, I believe that this phrase is uh, taken in part, at least from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. And here's what this passage says. It says this, in saying he, that's Jesus, ascended, what does it mean but that he, uh, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. I, missed a, I misspoke here. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? And he who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, John MacArthur, I think, gives a, a good explanation of this. So I'm just going to quote him in his commentary uh, of Ephesians. He says this, quote, To understand the phrase, the lower parts of the earth, all right, we, we need only examine its use elsewhere in Scripture. In Psalm 63, verse 9, it has to deal with, it has to do with death being related to falling by the sword. In Matthew 12, verse 40, a similar phrase, the heart of the earth, refers to the belly of a great fish where Jonah the prophet was kept. And if you know that story, Jesus compares it to death and a resurrection there. In Isaiah uh, 44, 23, the phrase refers to the created earth containing mountains, forests, and trees. Psalm 139, verse 15, <clears throat> uses it in reference to the womb of a woman where God is forming a child. The sum of these uses indicates that the phrase relates to the created earth as a place of life and death. It just, it, it, end quote, it, it just talks about this lower parts of the earth just refers to everything that goes on under the sun in the human life. Now, in light of this, I think that the intention of this phrase uh, from the original writers of the Apostles' Creed was to emphasize the fact that Jesus physically died, that he actually died, and that his body remained physically dead for three days, for three days. As mentioned before, the lower parts of the earth can refer to death, according to Psalm 63, verse 9. And I believe that the placement of this statement in the Apostles' Creed right here indicates that Jesus was crucified, he died, and was buried, and he remained in the place of the dead for three days, all right? And I think that, in my personal opinion, a better rendering might be he descended into Hades, the place of the dead, because the indication is that he descended into the place of the dead, remained there three days, and then rose again, coming out of the place of the dead, lived on earth for about 40 more years, and then ascended into have 40 more days, sorry, and then ascended into heaven. He descended into the lower parts of the earth, was killed, buried, and then rose again and ascended into heaven. And having ascended into heaven, the Apostles' Creed goes on to say, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Seated. What does seated mean? Well, you're thinking, well, I'm sitting down right now, right? Seated in the Old and New Testament refers to a completion of work. Jesus did his work. He was done with his work and he sat down. He was given a mission by his father, completed that mission, and then sat down. Well, what was Jesus' mission? What was his work that he was sent to do? I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 in the New Testament. As mentioned before, his mission was to take away our sins. And we see this beautifully expressed in Hebrews chapter 10. Here we see Jesus priestly work contrasted with the Old Testament priest's work. Now, priest, what is a priest? Uh, we usually don't hear too much about that. 
uh, today, unless you're in the Roman Catholic Church and you know you go to uh, confess your sins to a priest, and that's kind of getting at the idea of what this is. A priest in the Old Testament was one who uh, spoke to God on behalf of the people. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, the people were too unholy, too sinful to approach a holy God. And so they had to go through a mediator, a priest. Let's just say that we're back in the Old Testament times. This is our place of worship, and I am the priest of this place. You are too sinful to approach God, and so I will go to God on your behalf. Now, I'm just as sinful as you, which uh, the New Testament brings out as well regarding the priest. But what happens there is this, is that you say, hey, I want to have a relationship with God. And I say, you can't because you are a sinner. You have violated God. You've rebelled against him. And so, well, how can I be right with God? Here's what you do. You bring this sacrifice. And so what they would do very often is in the Old Testament is that they would bring the sacrifice. They'd bring a lamb. And this is what they would be saying with the lamb. They would be saying this, Mr. Priest, what you're about to do to this lamb, namely slit its throat, pour its blood out, and then burn it up, is what should be done to me. This is what I deserve. But I know that God has allowed me to bring this lamb as a substitute for me, that he will die so that I don't have to die. And that his death will atone or cover up my sins from God's view. That was why they did it in the Old Testament. Now, as we'll see, none of those sacrifices in the Old Testament ever took away a single sin because they had no power to. So Hebrews chapter 10 says this, says this, and every priest stands daily at his service, stands, let me stop there, stands, you'll see the contrast, stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Skipping down to verse 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Sanctified. What Jesus did is that he, those Old Testament priests, were standing always because their work was never done. They did the sacrifice this year. And then the next year, they did the same sacrifice. And then the next year, they did the same sacrifice. And they did it until the day that they died. And then the next priest took over and continued to do the same sacrifices, never taking away sin. Jesus comes on the scene, offers one sacrifice of himself, and he's done. He sits down because it took away every sin now. And now the only work that remains for Jesus is to come back one day and to judge the world. The Apostles' Creed goes on to say this, from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. This truth is, comes in several passages in the New Testament. I'm just going to give you one. You don't have to turn there. In John chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 22, Jesus is talking about how the Father placed all judgment into his hands. He says this, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And then skipping down to verse 20, he says this, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The Son will come back to earth one day, and he will judge everyone who is currently alive 
and everyone who is currently dead, which means everyone, right? Everyone falls into one of those two categories. People who have lived and died and people who are currently living, Jesus will judge everyone. Not one person will escape. We'll return to that in a moment. One more thing to note about the son is this, because he humbled himself, because he selflessly gave his life for us and then rose again from the dead, he was declared to be Lord of all. If you can turn to it, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, talking about the son and proving this point once again that he is Lord. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, it says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is Lord of all. And that's the last title that the Apostles' Creed gives to him. So this finishes our discussion of Jesus. Let's move briefly into a discussion of the Holy Spirit. We're not going to spend much time here. The the (coughs) Apostles' Creed doesn't spend much time here either. It just says this, I believe in the Holy Spirit, period. And then it just moves on, okay? Um, So we're not going to spend much time here. I want to ask two questions. Who is the Holy Spirit? And what is the Holy Spirit's function? And if you read the scriptures, what you will see is that the Holy Spirit is God. That the Holy Spirit is an, a person, okay? He's not a force, all right? He is a person. As a person, he can be grieved. He can be ignored. He can be lied to, or he can be listened to and followed. He is a person. He has several functions, all right? And these are in no particular order. But one of the functions of the Holy Spirit was to actually write down the words that we are able to read in the Bible. He is the one who inspired Moses to write the first five books of the Bible, inspired David to write many of the Psalms, inspired Paul to write many of his letters. It was the Holy Spirit guiding them to write down those things. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is the one who reminds us of the truths of the Bible. When Jesus was getting ready to leave the earth, his disciples were like, well, how are we going to remember all this? And Jesus says, I will send the Holy Spirit. He will guide you into all the truth. He'll remind you of the things that I taught you. So the Holy Spirit, according to John 16, guides us into truth. The third thing that the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit baptizes us into Christ. He unites us to Christ, according to Acts chapter 1. We are baptized into him, into Christ, by the Holy Spirit. A fourth thing that the Holy Spirit does is he is the one who empowers us with spiritual gifts. And this is where I want to uh, uh, camp for uh, a minute. I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And like I said, I want to spend a little bit of time here. I want to be very, very pastoral right now. Okay? And I want to challenge you, everyone in here. Anyone in here who claims to be a Christian, want to challenge you because if you claim to be a Christian, then you have been given a gift by the Holy Spirit. You have been given a gift or several gifts, a gift mix by the Holy Spirit to be used 
in the church. You've been given a gift. There's no Christian who has not been empowered by the Holy Spirit to, be, to do something in the church. And your gift has been given to you so that you can build up the rest of the body of Christ, so that you can build up the rest of the church. Whatever that gift is, whether it's big or small, or whether you think it's small or big, it's all used to build up other members of the church and to advance the gospel. We all have a unique gift mix by the Holy Spirit, and we function in a particular area in the church. You are designed in such a way that you function in this church in a way that I could never function in this church. I am designed in such a way and gifted by the Holy Spirit in such a way that I function in a, in a way in this church that you could never function in this church. You need me, and I need you. All right? We are a body. And there's a bunch of different gifts. For example, I'm just giving two examples. The gift of teaching. God has given teachers in the church. Not everyone has the gift of teaching, but there are people who have the ability to read the Word of God, to understand it, and then to communicate that to other people. That's a more showy gift, right? But then you have other people who have been given the gift of helps. It's a behind-the-scenes gift where they're just like, I don't want to be up front. I don't want to be noticed. You need something set up in the church? I'm your man, right? I'm your woman, right? You need, so, you need to move from uh, this old house to this new house? I'm there. Tell me what time. They are the support. They're the behind the scenes. People, they are just as important as the person who stands up here and preaches. Just as important. It's not like, oh, I preach, so I'm the most important person in this church. No. Every gift is important. Every gift is absolutely essential. There's tons of other gifts. It is incumbent upon you as a Christian to discover what that gift is and then to employ it in the service of this church or whatever church you find yourself in. You must know what your gift is and you must use it. You're in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Just give you one uh, example of this and there's many passages that talk about the gifts. But here's what Paul says. He says this beginning of verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 12. Now there are a variety of gifts but the same spirits. And there are a variety of services, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. All right? The Holy Spirit has gifted you for my good. He has gifted me for your good. And if you are not using your gift, you're doing me no good, right? If I'm not using my gift, I'm doing you no good. And that is a contradiction in terms. God did not create you and save you so that you would just sit there and do nothing. You've been given a gift. You have to know what that gift is, discover that gift, and then use it. The creed goes on. There's so much more that we could say about the Holy Spirit. Um, the creed goes on to say this. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church the communion of saints. Now that phrase is confusing because you're thinking, whoa, wait, I thought we were in a Protestant church. Now I'm in a Catholic church. I'm confessing my allegiance to the Roman Catholic church. Nope, that's not what you're doing. The word Catholic simply means universal. I believe in the universal church, all right? The communion of the saints, all right? So that's what it's talking about here. What you need to know about this is this. You are not an individual, Okay? You're not just an individual. The church is not just comprised of a bunch of individuals. We are a body. We are a body. 
and we must function as a body. We cannot isolate ourselves from one another. We cannot do that. To do so always ends badly. I've talked to many people over the years who have isolated themselves from the rest of the church and they're wondering why they're struggling so much. It's because you need me and I need you. We need each other. We are a body. God called a people to himself. Jesus died for a people, the church. And if you look at the Bible, there are tons of one another statements in the Bible. We as Christians are to pray for one another. We are to forgive one another. We are to serve one another. We are to bear one another's burdens. We are to give to one another. We are to encourage one another. We are to confront sin in one another. And here's what I want to say. You cannot pray for me unless you know me. And you have to talk to me to get to know me, right? You have to be with me to get to know me. We are a body. You cannot give to me. You cannot serve me unless you are with me, right? We have to know. You have to know what my needs are. I cannot serve you or pray for you properly or bear your burdens unless I'm in relationship with you. We cannot isolate ourselves. We cannot do that. We're a body. Think about this. The Bible uses the illustration of a body, which is, I think is the greatest illustration ever. Right now, for most of us, our kidneys are functioning pretty wonderfully, right? Your kidneys are functioning wonderfully. Why are they doing that? Because they are connected to a rich blood source, right, of oxygen and nutrients and all sorts of stuff. And they're connected to the rest of the urinary tract system, and they are working perfectly. You take one of your kidneys out of the body and isolate it from the body, what's going to happen? Yeah, it's going to shrivel up and die. It cannot survive outside of the body. Why? Because it was never intended to survive outside of the body. It was meant to be in the body. And the kidney does not do the same function as the brain or the heart or the liver. It's got a specific function that is very vital to the rest of the body. You cannot take yourself out of the body and function properly. You will shrivel up and die. Now, I am not implying that you will lose your salvation. That's not what I'm saying. I'm giving a graphic illustration of the importance of using your gifts, of being in the fellowship of the rest of the body, the church. We cannot isolate ourselves, okay? Now, there's several reasons why people might isolate themselves. People might say, you know what? I don't want to bother anyone. I don't want to bother anyone with my problems. You know, they got enough, you know, things on their mind. I don't want to bother them with my problems. Or, you know what? No one in that church actually cares about me. If I didn't show up for three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, they wouldn't even notice it. If I fell off the face of the earth, no one's probably asking me about me in church. I'm not that important. I'm, I'm worthless. I'm unlovable. I have nothing to offer. Those are reasons why people start to separate themselves. And it's so untrue. God loves you. And the church, I'm going to tell you, the church will fail you. But it doesn't mean that you pull out. You need the church. You need to confront the church on her sin. Those are all lies of the enemy because the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. <laughs> That's all he does. That's what he wants to do. He wants to kill you. He wants to steal your joy. He wants to destroy you. They're lies from the enemy. And we, as the church, must commune together. We must visit one another. We must bear one another's burdens and we must just care for each other. 
We'll talk more about that next week as we get into Acts chapter 2, so please don't miss that. Um, The Apostles' Creed goes on to say this, just a couple quick statements. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I'm going to tell you what, this is the gospel. This is the gospel plain and simple. As mentioned before, sin is what separates us from God. And you know what sin also does? It separates us from each other. Sin separates us from each other. My personal sins erect a wall between me and you. That's what they do. My insensitivity, my gossip, my whatever erects a wall between you and me. And your sin erects a wall between you and me as well. But more dangerous than that is our sin erects a wall between us and holy God. That's what sin does. It separates us from God. Jesus died, as we said before, to take away our sins. When we believe in Jesus, all of our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven and will never, ever separate us from God again. That's a beautiful message that we see in the Bible. The debt that we owe to God has been paid in full, and now we have full access to God. And although our sins will never separate us from God, the future sins that we will do, although they will never ultimately separate us from God, what they do do as we continue to sin is they hinder our fellowship with God. They hinder our ability to hear God. They hinder our usefulness in his service. You can't serve God faithfully when you're holding and clinging on to sin, which he hates so much. Our sins hinder our usefulness for him, our fellowship with him, our communication with him. This is why most weeks in church, we take some time to confess our sins. We say, God, whoa, I need to reflect. Man, this is how I treated my wife. This is how I treated my husband. This is how I treated my kids. This is, I gossiped. I did this. God, forgive me. I want to be right with you. I don't want anything hindering that right now. Forgiveness is a wonderful thing. God has extended it to you and me. We better extend it to other people. We need to extend it to other people people. We need to be quick to forgive those who have sinned against us, no matter how severe it may be. In our family devotions this past week, we were uh, going through a book and we came across a story about a woman who was driving down the street one day. I think she's driving like eastbound and there was a, a, a car full of teenagers coming in the westbound. And one of the teenagers leaned out the door, out the window, and threw a 20 pound frozen turkey through her windshield. It went through the windshield, uh, shattered the windshield, bent the steering wheel, and then shattered her face. Shattered her face. She was taken to the hospital where she was holding on for dear life. She eventually recovered, and through many, many reconstructive surgeries and titanium and all sorts of metal uh, in her face, disfigured, uh, she recovered. And then nine months later, she saw herself in a courtroom with the kid who threw the turkey through the window. And the judge gave the sentence. And when he gave the sentence, the people in the courtroom were absolutely appalled because this teenager, who was 18 at the time and now 19, got just six months in prison, five years probation, and some community service. And the the courtroom was just livid. But there's a reason why he gave that sentence. And the reason he gave that sentence is because the woman asked him to give the lightest sentence to this kid. And in the courtroom, she went up to him and he came up to her and tears in his eyes. And she just embraced him and said, I forgive you. 
and I want you to have the best life that you possibly can have. People, that is forgiveness, right? That is forgiveness. She will live with those scars for the rest of her life, clinging on to her life, right, at one point. And yet she forgave. She forgave. And I know that people have, are, or will hurt you in the future. I know that. I know that I have hurt people in this church, in every church that I have served, and I know that I have done that. And if you're honest, you have too. You've hurt people. Forgiveness is what we believe in. Forgiveness is what we long for, right? We need it. We need it. God has extended it to us, and we must extend it to others as well. Two more things just really quickly um, that go hand in hand. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the eternal life that follows. The resurrection is perhaps the greatest, most amazing promise in the Bible. This body, which is subject to disease and depression and death, will one day die. But that's not the end for those who believe in Jesus. Just like Jesus died and rose again from the dead, so we also will one day die and rise again if we believe in him. I want to give three passages. I just want to read these things. You don't have to turn. You can just listen that demonstrate this wonderful truth. The first is Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. It says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53 is the next one. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And then finally, I love this. We're at the end of the Bible now. Revelation chapter 21 says this, beginning in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Beloved, this is what we as believers are promised. This is what we believe. These are wonderful life-changing truths. And so I'm just going to close by saying this. If you have already believed in Jesus, if you've given your life to Jesus, people see your God again today and just stand in awe of him and say, Wow, 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 I don't deserve this. I forgot. I've, I've got my focus off of you. Please put it back on you.
And if you're here today and you have not given your life to Jesus, whether you are a young child or a really old person, right? It is not too late. Jesus is standing there and he says, if you believe in me, all this stuff will be true of you. I will take away your sins. I will give you access to God. I will give you a promise of a glorious inheritance. And this life, which is so painful, a thousand years from now will be wiped completely from your memory. If you haven't done that, don't leave without doing that. Come talk to me or someone else. Get right with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank and praise you for who you are. Thank you for the truths of your word. Holy Spirit, I know that um, right now we're thinking about what we're going to eat. We're thinking about what we're going to do this afternoon or this week. And I pray, God, that if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, that you would not allow Satan to steal away the seed that's been planted. I pray that it will take root, and I pray that they would say, I need this, I need this, tell me how, and that they would seek you. And the promise is that if we come to you, you will never cast us out. I was to come, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.